Hey, good morning, Rock Bible Church. How are we? Now, Scott did say that the 9 a.m. is the most lively, responsive, interactive service. So I'm hoping he wasn't lying to me. I'm really hoping your pastor wasn't lying to me. But um, we're, we're going to dig at Romans today. But before we go there, I want to ask a couple questions and play with some, some ideas a little bit. And the first question is this. Is life bigger than the moment you're currently living in? Is life bigger than the current moment you're living in? As a high school football coach, I can tell you that the fourth quarter, three minutes left to go, whether you're up by seven or down by seven, feels like the most important moment there is. As a dad of two, I remember the birth of both of them and going, man, is there a bigger moment than this right here, like the birth of a child? I actually remember when I lost my brother and feeling like, oh, in that moment of losing a loved one, is there anything bigger than that feeling of loss right then and there? There's really big moments, and in that moment, it can feel so centric and focused that the world can fade away, but we would say that, yeah, life is definitely bigger than the moment we're living in. I want to introduce you to my family while they're not here. Uh, Actually, uh, I'll walk. My wife is Kim. Uh, We've been married 19 years as of July 8th. We just celebrated anniversary, and we have a 16-year-old who is now another inch and a half taller now than that picture was taken. He's pushing 6'3". Um, he is a football player. He's actually in his third year of taking Latin because he wants to be a better writer. I have no clue where the DNA came on this one. Uh, the, the youngest one, Cole, is actually serving at church right now. He's leading our third and fourth grade class. Uh, he's a mountain biker. He loves playing lacrosse. And um, he's the one who never stops. He's like the Energizer Bunny. And in this moment of this family, uh, I get the title of father. And father is a great role to have, but it's also a challenging role to have because before I became a father, I was a son. So let me, before we dig into Romans, let me share a little bit more about my story. And before I was a dad, like I said, I was a son, but here's, here's how my childhood started. I was three months old and mom went to the grocery store uh, in Vail, Colorado in an old beat up Datsun with me and the beagle named Freckles. She was a really fat beagle, by the way. Like she took her own car seat in the back seat. So she goes to the grocery store and she brings me home in the little like uh, the car seat and she's walking up the steps and my dad meets her there with a suitcase and says, we're done. And so in that moment, she got the joy of driving from Vail to Denver to my grandma's house, and we lived with my grandma for three years until my mom married my stepdad. And then married my stepdad, life was good for a few years. My sister came along, and then when I was about nine or ten is when that marriage turned verbally and physically abusive to my mom and I. And so growing up, the moments that I had, and it felt like that moment that I was in was really overwhelming. And as a adolescent, pre-adolescent, <clears throat> excuse me, into being an adolescent, there were so many visuals and messages that happened that I had a tension point of going, what's real? What's an image of a healthy man? What's an image of a healthy relationship? Because everything around me was act how you want, scream how you want, say what you want, do what you want, misogynize women however you want, and there's zero consequence to you. It always affects others. And so when we think about the fact that is the moment we're living in really that significant, yes, but is, the, is life bigger than that moment? Yeah, but it's really hard sometimes to pull back and look at it. And essentially, that's a little bit of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're going to look at that. We're going to start in Romans 8, but we're going to look at this question as well today. I believe that our lives can move in the direction of our strongest obedience. 
Our lives will move in the direction of our strongest obedience. Whatever it is we're going to submit ourselves to, that whatever we would obey, our lives are going to move in that direction. And so if you want some notes or if you want a Bible, the guys are going to pass one out. But here's a beauty that we have in the redemptive work of the gospel, that the life is broken, people are broken, but what does Jesus do? He brings healing and redemption. Amen? Okay, now that doesn't sound like the, the awake, interactive nine o'clock Scott told me about. So if Jesus is alive and, and interactive and he brings healing to the world, we can say amen, right? Amen. All right, here we go. So uh, Romans 8, go with me there. And let's pray. Jesus, based on your redemptive work and the fact that you resurrected from the dead, uh, we want to say thank you. We want to thank you that in the, where we live and the moments we're in, they're just that. They're a moment. It's fleeting. But Jesus, we would ask that as we point our lives in a direction to be obedient to you, we would constantly move that way. So God, we thank you for Scott and we thank you for Julie and the family. We thank you for the blessing that they have to celebrate a momentous occasion of a wedding. We thank you for the fact that we're here able to look at the scriptures and ask your spirit to breathe life into us. So we love you because you first loved us. Amen. All right. So um, if you don't know any backstory, let me just give a little bit. But Paul wrote Romans to the church in Rome, epicenter of Greek life. It's actually um, astounding to know how strong the Roman Empire was and how vast it was through Europe, Eastern Europe, and into all of England. And when we think about Rome and we think about what it stood for at the time, there was such a strong presence of we are the best. In fact, Rome had such a political upheaval within the early church that many of the phrases and verses that we look at, Acts 4.12, there is no name under heaven by which you can be saved than that of Christ Jesus our Lord, is actually a play on words of what you would say to Caesar. There is no other Caesar under heaven by which you can be saved than that of, and you fill in the blank of the common Caesar at the time. So Rome had this huge political upheaval, but Rome also had this moment where the church birthed and flourished. Flourished despite a suffering, flourished despite a a prosecution, flourished because of who? Because of Christ. And so when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he was reminding them of the greater truth of the gospel. And we cannot get into all of the theology within 30 minutes, 27 actually, Um, but what we can get into is some of the nuggets that you can take with you Because if our lives move in the direction of our strongest obedience, what are we obedient to? So Romans 8, verses 1 through 6. There is now, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to flesh, but according to spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. Let's pause there. Now, for common ground, let's look at some key words. Um, When we hear the term law in a Western mindset, we have a Western judicial mindset. When we hear law, we hear you're in trouble, right? Most parents at some point said, in a store, you break it, we got to buy it, right? Uh, If you go too fast down I-5 heading to Disneyland because it's the greatest place on earth, uh, you're going to get pulled over. Guilty as charged twice. Uh, You are going to have moments where when you hear of a law code broke, there is a consequence. 
and that is true. When we look at the law, what is referred to as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books or five law books of what we have as the Old Testament, it is a law code, but it's not primary law code. There's social implications. There's moral implications. There's spiritual implications. There's ethical implications. But in our mindset, we quickly go to our Western judicial mindset. But when we hear law, we actually need to think more of terms of a covenant. Now, that's another word we don't use very often, and is this term covenant. And a covenant essentially is a binding agreement that can only be broke by the originator of that. And so when we think of law, and when Paul is writing about the law, he's reminding the church, which is a predominant Jewish mindset, that says the law, or the terms of the covenant, which we have had for generations and generations, does what? It points us to life in Christ. You may hear of terms of there's the Adamic covenant, there's the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, there's the Davidic covenant. And all of that is an ongoing conversation with God who chose to redeem a select set of people to set them aside and said, this is how our relationship's going to work. And this is the ongoing relationship. But in that relationship, there's a key factor. There's always a brokenness because of sin that stands between us. And therefore, praise God, we have the new covenant in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that new covenant brings healing, redemption, grace. Uh, when we think of laws, I had to just Google for a second going, what are some random laws in California? In Eureka, men with mustaches cannot kiss a woman in public. In Burlingame, which is not far from where I'm at, I'm over in Redwood City, it's illegal to spit in public except for on a baseball field. Okay? Um, if you live in California and are a Raiders fan, you're just destined to pain. I don't know if that's a law, but being from Denver, I'm a Broncos fan, so Scott and I go at it all the time. Yep, you're welcome. Praise Jesus. We're, there, heaven is big enough for both of us. Um, the law in this terms of this covenant, uh, we wrestle with because internally in us, there is a, even as a Christ follower, there's a tension in our flesh. And we're going to get to that in a second. But if our, if our desires and if our life can be set in the direction of our strongest obedience, what is it we're really obeying? Uh, what I love about when we think about the generations of faith, there was just an oral tradition for the longest time that parents and grandparents and tribe leaders and elders and people in places and mothers and grandmothers would actually remind their sons and their daughters and the next generation and the next generation, this is what the Lord said. In fact, when you ever hear the old hymn, there's an Ebenezer, it's a reminder of the columns of stone that Israel would place in significant moments that this is where God moved. And I often wonder, even in my own story, that there's times where I can go, man, God, I, I, I didn't, we didn't grow up around church. I actually didn't come to know Jesus until I was 18 years old. And I fought the idea of God for the last two years of that because there's no way there's a loving God who allows that sort of pain. And that was just a real tension for me. But when we look back and go, man, there's a narrative in the world that God is always moving, even in its brokenness. Uh, I've been in vocational ministry for 18 years, and in those 18 years, predominantly it's been within the family ministry dynamic, so birth through high school. And let me tell you, when you try to teach middle schoolers heavy theological concepts, you have to be creative. And so I'm going to give you a phrase that it may or may not stick with you, but it has worked for me, that there's this reality when we talk about covenants in the Old Testament, that there's this circle of dumbness. So Israel was good with God, 
Israel thought they could do it on their own. Israel went into slavery or persecution and screamed, help. God redeemed with prophetic voices, and they went back to being good with God. And there's just this circle of dumbness. It works. Trust me, walk through Genesis through Malachi. It's always there of going, oh, God, we're good. I think we can do this on our own. Crap. God, where are you? And there's this circle. And I often think that that circles even in our own day and age, because when we wrestle with this idea of law as a condition of covenant, we're also wrestling with, well, who's the originator of it? And the originator of it being God himself can dictate whatever he wants the standard to be. Grace and humility allows us to submit to that, because if God is God, then we submit out of obedience, not out of force. Because if our lives move in the directions of our strongest obedience, and if our lives are to follow this covenant and this relationship with Christ, then what are we obeying? So let's jump back to Romans 8. Because the beauty of what Paul reminds the church is that because of Christ and the forgiveness of sin and his resurrection from death, you now stand both justified, redeemed, and moving in a new life. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that does not stir you to want to scream an amen, something within your spirit is etched. Because if Christ does not condemn you, and as a follower of Christ, if there is nothing that stands between you and a holy God, then stop condemning yourself for things that he does not condemn you for. If we, when we look at a mirror and we go, who are you really? And we see guilt and shame and we begin to hear listening to the condemning voices within inside of us. And if it is not something that Christ condemns us for, then that is what it is. It's shame and it's a voice we should not listen to. And I say, kick it back to hell. Because within us, if we are redeemed and justified, then we stand without condemnation, we stand with grace, we stand with freedom, we stand with humility, we stand before God, our judge and king, who says, I love you, I delight in you, because I died for you. What does it look like for us to wrestle with the fact that some of us have guilt in our lives that is self-placed because we actually don't believe the gospel? For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you what? Free. Free. Like, free. There's no unique Greek thing here happening. It literally means free. Free from bondage, free from slavery, free from anything that would make you go, I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. God doesn't really love me. There is real no forgiveness for anything and everything I've done. In condemnation, it's a voice that Satan loves for you to get messed with because it pulls you away from what love in Christ looks like. For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for our sin. See, when we look at these covenants and we're reminded of the depth of what it is, there is nothing we could do to fully fulfill it. As the author of that covenant, God said, I know that. But because what he promised in Genesis with Adam and Eve, he fulfilled here in the new covenant saying, there is final forgiveness. Um, As someone who works with teens and families, uh, there's a pinpoint, and I usually drop it right at about age 13 to 14, where this mental linear click happens in a lot of teenagers. And if they don't absorb it, guess what? You still wrestle with it in your age today. Because the click is this. If God really intervened in a time in my life, 
then the trajectory of where I go is obedience or it's tension. It's either obedience or it's tension. And in the obedience, it's the ability to sit back and go, I believe that even though I don't feel that I'm free, and I don't feel that I'm in a spot that I'm redeemed, what I know to be true from the voice of God in community and with those I love is that the redemptive work of Christ is good. So when Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul is saying is this, in that God's righteous wrath and his omnipotent opposition to us in sin has been totally replaced by mercy, by his omnipotent assistant. He met us where we were at. It's Romans 5.8. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's a beautiful picture here. When we talk about the law and we talk about covenant and we talk about where is our obedience, our obedience is to what? The things that we want to do to prove ourselves or the fact that Christ says, no, 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 who you are as a redeemed child of mine is beautiful. If you're in Christ and you wake up, you wrestle with thoughts, you're in your day and you're going, man, am I really forgiven? Am I really loved? Is there days where it's good and I'm like, man, God and I are in the, on a solid set. We're in a good spot. I did my quiet time. Therefore, God must be good with me today. And then there's those bad days where you're like, ah, God, what did I do to mess up? If you think that God operates based on you, I am going to give you a Greek word that I want you to memorize. It's called ridiculous. <laughs> Say it out loud with me. Ridiculous. See, the beauty of God is do, he does not operate on you, he operates on himself. And if you begin to play the poker game that, hey, if I cash enough chips here, God's going to do what I need him to do. But if I don't cash enough chips here, I got to be careful because God's going to get me somehow. That's a really bad ideology. It's not even good theology. Because when we don't stand condemned, there's no reason to operate that way. Christ does ask for accountability. There is no questioning that. You see that all through scripture. But accountability is different than condemnation. And there really is a, a huge, vast thinking perspective. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh, um, that word in Greek is called sarks. It literally means anything that's physical. Uh, it's the ability to pinch skin and go, man, that's, that's sarks. There's a flesh. There's something physical there. It also has the underlying tone of human nature. So when Paul says in 8.5, he says, but for those who live according to their flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Um, it's a repetitive cycle of disobedience and pride. It's a repetitive cycle of saying, hey, if anything that is physical, that's flesh-driven, that's human nature inspired, is going to pull you away. It's going to pull you from a Christ-centric perspective. And that's actually why we meet as Christ followers. It's why the church met continually, to remind one another of what? In Acts, the early church met to take bread which was breaking of communion and reminding that Passover, but it was also to remind one another, this is the gospel of which we believe, that we are forgiven. So when we meet together in community, the need for authentic community is to be able to be vulnerable enough to go, hey, I think I'm living off my human nature. And for a friend, a mentor, a peer, someone who's got a trusted voice to go, hey, let's talk about that. 
Let's actually connect one-on-one. Let's connect as a community. Let's connect to be vulnerable enough to go, well, what do you mean? And in our Western world, we're really good at the garage door, shutting, keeping the world out. We're really good in some settings going, I'll post what I want to post in a, in a social media platform, but don't dare have a face-to-face conversation with me because it's easier to hide behind a screen. In full vulnerability, Paul is reminding the church in Rome to say, hey, what it is that you are doing on a fleshly human nature drive, you actually need to stop. Because he says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Uh, that word spirit, anybody know what it is in Greek? Someone just muddled it, I think. It's pneuma. It's where we get the word pneumatic, actually, as a root word from. Pneuma means life and breath. So anybody that lives according to their human nature, set their minds on that. Anybody that lives according to the breath of life, lives according to that. Think about that. Take a deep breath for me right now. That's a physical reminder of the same thing God does, breathes in and breathes into you. It's a reminder of even how he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he did what into his nostrils? He breathed life. It is the same mental connection between this word and what God physically did to create. So in the spirit breathing life into you, what would it be like in that moment of stress, the moment of guilt, the moment of condemnation, that you literally would just pause and take a deep breath? Um, my youngest, uh, who is now 15, uh, has always had a tension point when things don't work out the way he thinks they should in his mind. And when he was young, five, six, seven, there would be this little thing called a tantrum that would happen. And I was the dad that would like, you want to throw a tantrum at Target? Go for it. Not going to bug me. And he would have moments of pure meltdown. And I always remember, I never did this, but my wife would be able to go, take a breath, let's, let's compose ourselves, let's work on this together. And if you have ever wrestled with anxiety, if you've ever wrestled with even anxious thoughts, you know the power <clears throat> of a recentering breath. And I actually believe that's something that God's spirit wants to do in us every morning that we are cognitively awake to go, can I breathe life into you today? Because I need you to remind yourself that you're not condemned. Uh, As a parent to parent, I want to just encourage you on something. Some of us parents wrestle with our parenting because we often parent out of our own guilt. We parent out of our own tension points. We parent out of our own inadequacies and we allow that to be a influence of how we speak to our kids, regardless of age, in the house or out of the house. Parenting's parenting. And I wonder what it's like if you breathe life into your kids the same way Christ breathed life into you. And that could be for spouses, it could be for friends, it could be for roommates, because some of us like self-deprecation a little much. And I call it my bag of despair. Because in our bag of despair, there's always things that we can pull out of our bag um, that connect so much to what we're trying to do. Duct tape. My camping best friend. Can I tell you how many projects I fixed with duct tape, bailing wire, and zip ties? You can actually get a radiator hose to go from Lake Mead, Arizona 
to Riverside, California on enough rolls of duct tape and zip ties until you get to a decent mechanic when you've got 120 high schoolers on a houseboat trip. Promise you, you make everything happen so you don't have 119 people going, what's the deal? But duct tape. Anybody ever say anything? They're like, ah. And it's one of those moments where it's like, why did I say that? Why can't I just take that moment back? What does it look like to, to speak in such a way that is actually full of the same spirit of life that is breathing into you as you breathe into others? Uh, what about this? A little deposit envelope. What's it look like in the tension of going, man, if I can just put enough in the bank account for a family, for status, what does it look like if this is a driving factor, if this is a sole factor for you? Is it a gospel-centered factor to go, man, all I care about is the next transaction. I'm going to try to do it ethically, but really, I just care about the, the weight of this going into the bank account. What about a gift? What about if there's self-motive? Like, hey, I'm going to give you this, but really it's transactionary. Because I'm going to give you this, waiting to cash in on that later. What does it look like when your relationships are fully leveraged on just condition versus just grace? I meant to grab a diaper, but we're long out of that season, so I grabbed the next best thing, wet wipes. I still have a habit of carrying these in my truck. But what does it look like when we feel like everybody else's mess is ours to clean up? And the agitation and the frustration and the anger and the bitterness that that can arrange. To go, man, when can I just get my life back to the way I want it? And my question sometimes is, is it really your life to begin with or is this an act of worship to the Lord? When we sit in our bag of despair, and we sit in that tension of like, what about me? We can get very me-centric. And it's a constant battle. And it's a constant battle when done in community and in the relationship with Christ, there's something life-giving. And when Paul says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's Romans 8, 6. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And from Romans 8 to Romans 12, Paul does a lot of coverage. And we're not going to go through that, but I want to go to Romans 12 real quick as we set up to close. There is a moment in us that if we don't actually understand the depth of what it means to own life in the spirit, which is life in peace, then we miss it. And we miss it because if our lives move in the direction of our strongest obedience, what starts first? And Paul would say in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. It's all of us. It's not just part of us. It's our body. It's our mind. It's our souls. It's our senses. It's our touch. It's our motives. It's our actions. It's our desires. It's our drives. It's everything. Paul says, I appeal to you out of the mercy of God who redeemed you from sin that you give all of you as an act of worship. This is a holy thing you do. And in doing that, what happens next? 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That term renewal is an active verb. It's an active verb that literally has no end. He was running, in our language turns to he ran. To be actively renewed, renewed, there is no end point to it. It's a constant motion forward. And I shared with you at the beginning that in my own story that I came to a spot where all I thought life around me was what I saw in the moments, and the moments were destructive, and, dis- and not just destructive to people, but to self. And there was, a, there was a moment where I had to come to a spot where I said, you know what, if God's real, because these other followers of Christ are talking in such a way, and living in such a way that there's joy and life in them, I wonder if, and that's actually all it took for the renewing of my mind to happen, for me to actually start hearing God's spirit even before I came to know Christ. To go, there's a renewing in me and a rethinking of how life could work and should work. And when I came to know Christ, my life got flipped upside down, and I'm thankful for it 20 years later. But it's one of those moments that I just sit back and go, God, if you are constantly renewing me and how I think and how I act and how I parent and how I am a husband and how I am a person in the community, and when I see social injustice in my zip code, am I acting on them? When I see people not honored in public, do I say something? It's all of life. And in all of life, it keeps coming back to the reality that if I'm going to live life in the Spirit, then I need to be obedient to the Spirit. If I want to live life in such a way that I'm following God, Christ, then I want to live that way. A couple questions that I would ask you to think out loud on. They're not up on the screen, but um, I believe that it's true that more is caught than taught. I think people watch our interactions, and when we claim the name of Christ, we're under a different magnifying glass. And so in doing that, is how we honor people in public, what would they say about what Jesus says about you? When you honor someone and people see that, what would their descriptive of what God is be? If you're in a relationship, and that's a friendship, a roommate, a marriage, a dating scenario, you're a parent, whatever relationship dynamic you're in, is how you view those that you're in relationship with, is it rooted in what Christ is doing in you? What does it look like when you're in a spot where maybe you feel guilt, you feel shame? And you're asking yourself, is this a call to repentance? Because guilt does lead to repentance that's from the Lord. Guilt that leads to condemnation is not. So if I'm being led to repentance, am I willing to repent, which means turn the other way and confess that and then say, I actually want accountability. See, I want to be able to repent, seek accountability, run with accountability, so that I know in community I'm actually pursuing life in the Spirit. Change is constant within our relationship with Christ. And in having change constant in our relationship with Christ, here's an honest truth. I sat with Scott Berglund on the steps of Huntington Beach, California, the second best beach in Southern California, by the way. And our first, Treasure Island, right below the Montage in Laguna. No one knows where it's at because it's a secret local beach. I remember him saying out loud, I think God wants me to plant a church. See, my relationship with Scott is I'm one of the five guys that Scott gets away with every year. Scott's been a pastor to you, but he's also been a pastor to me. And I remember sitting there going, dude, you're selling flooring right now. If you guys don't know his story about this, I'm telling you he'll take you to coffee and he'll pay for it to tell you the story. 
But I remember sitting with him and the rest of us guys were Brian Berry and, and Mark and Gino and sitting and going, okay, so now what? He was like, I don't know. I just, I think God wants me to plant a church. And we still rib Scott about that to go, hey, remember that one time you thought God wanted you to plant a church and you didn't want to do anything? And we kind of all four looked at you and said, get off your butt and do it. Because if God's prompting you, you should probably obey that. And Rock Bible Church, those of you that are here, whether you've been here a, f- a short time or from the beginning, you are able to experience community because of an obedience to a person that said, I think God's saying this. And through community and accountability, sought that out with wisdom and counsel. And the beauty of the narrative of what Rock Bible Church stands for is obedience to the Lord. And it's really fun for me to be with you today to be reminded of that. Because... You don't know the behind the scenes and no one ever does of everybody else's life. But what we do know is when we gather in community, we know that we agree on a couple things that we're here to say, Jesus, what do you have for us this week and this day? And for you that you may be visiting with a friend or they said, hey, come to my church and I would just love for you to see what my face about. This idea of following Christ is a reality that we would stake our lives on. And when I say the we, we that believe that Christ is resurrected from the dead, and it's just really this, that we actually believe that the world is broke because of this thing called sin that is both personal and systematic. It's affected everything. And in this sin that there's a separation between us and God, but the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, who died on a cross to resurrect from the dead, to say, your sin will not keep you from an eternal relationship with me. I will pay that price and I call you to the life you're actually supposed to live. Some often ask, go, hey, what does it look like to follow Christ? And I sum it up in one word. It's, it's submission. It's obedience. It's the fact that I am not God and you are, and therefore I will follow you. And in surrendering your life to Christ, you surrender it by saying, God, I actually need you both for sin, but I need you for life and peace. And often some people who have never navigated a faith conversation or maybe have navigated several different faith conversations from different religions go, well, what's the difference between Christ and fill in the blank? And I would say it's this. From the claims of Christ resurrecting from the dead to the reality of what the life in the spirit looks like, it's ability to go every single day, I don't have to be enough. I don't have to be enough of anything. I just have to be able to submit and go, God, I want you to follow. I want to follow you. And if you've been journeying with rock or in community, if you've just been journeying with a friend, I would say this, that if you've never said yes to Christ, I'm going to ask you the same question that was asked of me 20 years ago, and I constantly ask others is, would you at least look into it? Would you at least look into the claims of who Christ is? Would you actually be willing to say, what does the Bible really have to say about and fill in the blank? And as a community, what does it look like for us to live in such a way and people go, hey, you claim the name of Christ but what about fill in the blank? How does that hold up? I want to be able to pray for you and the team is going to lead in a kind of a closing song. But before I do, um, I'd love for you to write down this question. Whether you text it down to yourself or you write it down on a slip of paper, but here's a question that I had for you today. It's this. What's my strongest obedience to? been repeating this line, our lives will move in the direction of our strongest obedience. What's your strongest obedience to? Is it to self? Is it to others? Is it to money? Is it to status? Is it to shame? Is it to self-deprecation? What's your strongest obedience to? 
I genuinely don't believe you can answer this where you're sitting. I think this is one of those moments you got, let me really think about this. Let me really maybe talk this out as a family. And that's an interesting conversation around dinner table. Hey, family, where do you think our strongest obedience to as a family is? But I'd ask you to sit on that with this ability to go, hey, God's spirit, will you speak and lead us? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the gospel that is undeserving to us but it is freely given by you for the ability for us to experience grace and mercies. And God, that when we submit our lives to you, we are what? Transformed and we are renewed. So God, in both the transformation and the renewing of who we are every day, we know this, that you are God and we are not, and we just want to submit and be obedient to you. God, thank you for these friends that we know each other because of the name of Christ and the community that this stands for. So we look forward to seeing the story of how you'll move again and again, knowing that as we follow you, God, you have great things in store because of who you are. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your love in our lives. Amen.